So I want, I want to start off with a little, little illustration. I want you to have in your mind something that you'd want to do maybe for the rest of your life. What's the thing that you think that you could do for the rest of your life that would completely fulfill you? That would just be something that you would love to do. You'd love to go back and do that again and again and again. Have that thing in mind. What, what is that thing? Just keep that there. Now I, and now I just want to be clear about what I'm saying. I'm saying whatever that thing that you have in your mind right now, you will be doing until the end of your life. Nothing else. So maybe you might, after that clarification, you might want to rethink what that thing is, right? Because you might be thinking, you know what I want to do? This is what I want to do. I want to go to the Bahamas. I want to have that nice coconut drink with a little umbrella, you know, on the one hand, and a nice uh, book on the other hand, and relax in the sun, watch the waves come in. I mean, that would be great, right? For about a week. And then the second week rolls around and you know, you're starting to get tired of it and then the month goes by and a year goes by and eventually you're gonna be bored stiff. Now, let me change the parameters on you yet again. Have that thing in your mind. Now you're not just doing that thing until the end of your life. Now you've gotta do whatever it is that you're thinking for the rest of eternity. Right? So, I don't really know what you have in your mind, but I know that whatever that thing is, no matter how lofty or how noble, how engaging it might be, if you do that thing for forever, you will be bored stiff. It will be really that thing that you think will fulfill you for this extremely long period of time. That thing will become eventually a small version of hell. It really will be. It won't engage you. It won't thrill you. It'll be small. The pleasures will be nothing after very long. That thing that we think will fulfill us will only fulfill us for a short time. Now, I'm going to propose to you this morning that there is something that you could do forever that will fulfill you for all time. And you might be skeptical about it, but I want to tell you what it is, and then you can decide for yourself. To know, love, worship, and behold God. That is the one thing that you could do forever and never get tired of it. In fact, it is the only thing that will truly and completely fulfill you. We're continuing our series called Design to Thrive. In our culture, we seem to have this idea in our head that we've got to make a decision. Either we live our lives in a way that pleases God, or we live our lives in a way that pleases ourselves. Like, we've got this choice, right? Either I do the thing that God wants me to do, or I've got to do the thing that I want to do for me. But in reality, God has designed us, and God has designed his commands so that we will thrive. In other words, insofar as we follow what God has for us, we'll, we will be living for our best interest. We don't have to choose one or the other. Following God is what's best for us. He has designed us to thrive. And that's what we're hoping to show you throughout this series. And today we're going to, uh, today's sermon is called Design to Worship. Whatever that thing was in your mind that you think would fulfill you, whether it was going to the Bahamas or doing a, a really interesting project, maybe it's building something, I'm not sure, but whatever that is, strung out to eternity would not thrill you. It would just become a small version of hell. But knowing God, loving Him, trusting Him, seeing Him, beholding Him, is the one thing that will fulfill you. You might be skeptical, and I understand that, because you're thinking, you know, am I really gonna, is that really gonna fulfill me? Like, an eternity worshiping God, 
you know, one hour a week is bad enough here in this, here in this auditorium. Like, that's bad enough. You're telling me all time I'm going to be fulfilled by this? Well, let me show you what the Bible says, and then you can make a decision. We're going to Revelation chapter 4. That's the last book of the Bible. I've got my Bible upside down. Revelation chapter 4. There, uh, there are uh, Bibles in the auditorium that you can grab. There's also uh, some great free Bible apps that we've been putting in, in the bulletin. Uh, they're, they're perfect for uh, an auditorium such as this because the lighting might not be perfect for reading. So if you use an app, you'd be able to see that perfectly. Revelation chapter 4. And before we get into this passage, Rev the book of Revelation is one that has, uh, there's been a lot of controversy over this book because it's difficult to understand. And for us to understand what's going on in Revelation, we have to learn about its genre. And its genre is this, apocalyptic literature. This was a genre that was quite popular back in Jesus' day, but kind of has gone out of vogue. And I'm not sure if any of you are reading much apocalyptic literature. So to understand what's going on in Revelation, we have to know what that is. And we can make two mistakes when it comes to apocalyptic literature. Two mistakes. One is to take it hyper-literally. One is to take it hyper-literally. Because when you read Revelation, you're going to see a lot of metaphors, a lot of imagery, a lot of similes, a lot of poetic language. And if we take that all literally, we're going to miss the point. But there's another, uh, there's another mistake that we can make. One is to take it hyper-literally. The other one is to take it, take it hyper-metaphorically. In other words, some people will look at the book of Revelation and basically say, well, the book of Revelation, all it says is God is powerful and God wins. That's not the case. There's much more depth to the teaching that Revelation is going to show each and every one of us. These metaphors, these similes, this poetic language is pointing to meaning that each and, I, uh, each and every one of us can understand. But the reason why it's so difficult to understand what's going on in Revelation is because the Apostle John, who writes this book, has this challenge in front of him. And D.A. Carson has this illustration that I'm going to share with you. And until I hear a better illustration, I'm just going to keep using this one. So here's the illustration. Imagine you were going to some far off isolated island. And there, were some, there was a tribe on there, some group of people on there. And they have no knowledge of the outside world, no knowledge of technology, no knowledge of the West. They're completely isolated and they have their own language. Now, imagine your task is to teach them about electricity. So you go to that island and you need to teach them about electricity. So you only have their language to work with. So what are you going to do? How are you going to describe to them what electricity is all about? Well, you might say something like, okay, electricity, it's kind of like fire. You know, it's kind of like fire, uh, but the fire is, is kind of, it, it moves in different ways. It, it doesn't move um, like a fire does. It moves, well, they don't, they don't know about wires. So it moves through vines, tree vines. So this fire moves from tree vine to tree vine and it goes from hydropole to hydropole, but they don't have hydropoles. So, okay, this fire moves through vines from tree to tree and it goes to your house and it gives you power to like lift rocks or something like that. You might explain it that way. And you wouldn't be wrong, but you're using the language that you have at your disposal. So you have to fill it with a lot of metaphor and imagery to get your point across. And that's what's happening with the Apostle John. The book of Revelation is a vision he sees. It's a vision that Christ gives him. And he's put into this, what he calls, he's put in the spirit. 
He sees the heavenly realms. He sees these indescribable things, and he tries to put human language on it. And so what he's telling us is his best way, the best way he can to explain to us what he is seeing. So it's a mistake to take it hyper-literally, but it's also a mistake to take it hyper-metaphorically as well. We have to do the hard work of trying to see what the Apostle John is trying to explain to us in this book. You kind of with me? Okay, with me. All right, we're going into this chapter. And by the way, this, this, this sermon is going to be a little different than usual. Um, I'm really hoping with this sermon that we are just brought into worship of God. I love this book of the Bible. It is such a stunning, a stunning passage that explodes with God's glory. And I'm hoping as we look through this, we will just worship God as we see what he and who he is. Now, let's go. There's four reasons that I'm going to go through why we can worship God forever and be totally fulfilled. And the first reason is this, the beauty of God. The beauty of God. He is completely beautiful. He is ultimately beautiful. Let's read this passage together. Chapter 4, verse 1. Here it goes. After this, I looked. That's John. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. So John is about to go into this door and see what's going on in heaven. And the voice I had, he I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. If you read earlier in the book, you would know that that is actually the voice of Jesus saying, and Jesus says to John, hey, I want to show you something. I want to show you the future. I want to show you what heaven will look like. And verse 2, this is the phrase he uses. At once I was in the spirit. He enters the spiritual realm. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. So he enters heaven and he sees this throne. It's apparently, uh, there's other thrones in the place, but apparently this one is a special throne. And verse 3, just take a, just read this. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. This is a description of God's beauty of his glory. John is trying to put to words what he is seeing. And the words that he uses is that of brilliant color, dazzling brightness, unbelievable worth, complete glory. He is seeing the very beauty of God. And he tries to put it in words. And he uses these precious gemstones, these most precious things, to try to describe to us the unimaginable worth of God. He is in the throne room of God and sees his complete and utter beauty. It's an incredible thing. We, when we think of God, we usually think of some of his other attributes. He's all-knowing. He's all-wise. He's all-powerful. He's all-present. But rarely do we stop to consider that God is all beautiful, infinitely beautiful. If we were in his presence, we would behold nothing but his absolute holiness, glory, and beauty. 
Now, if you're, if you're like me, when you think of the word beauty, you, you think of kind of feminine beauty. And you might be thinking that now. That's a strange way to describe God. But there are so many things that we describe as beautiful. In fact, you could think of them right now. There is beauty when we look to the cosmos, when we look to the stars and we see the planets and we see the stars. We can see intense beauty. But we can also see beauty in the very small. We can also see beauty in atoms and in quarks and small things as well. And we can see beauty in the intricacy of how your body works and how your cells work. And we can see beauty when an athlete runs a race at the peak of his prime. And we can see beauty when a dancer dances perfectly. And we see beauty when music comes together in full harmony. The question is, why do we see beauty at all? Beauty is not something you can test for. You, you can't do some science that says, well, this is beautiful and this isn't. We just detect beauty. We just see beauty around us. Why is that? Why do we see beauty? And here's the reason. The reason why we can see beauty is because we are designed to see beauty. That God has put it in us to see beauty. And that God has put it in us that we might behold his beauty. The reason why we see beauty is ultimately because we are meant to behold the incredible beauty of God. The beauty by which all other Small beauties are measured. Ultimate, supremely beautiful. That's why we will be able to worship him forever and be fulfilled because his beauty knows no bounds. He is beautiful. Meditate on that. Think on that. That God is all beautiful. That's the first reason. Here's the second reason why we can worship God forever and never get tired of it, fulfill us forever. And it's because of the grace of God, the grace of God. And grace means unmerited favor or undeserved favor. Because of his incredible grace towards us, we will worship him forever. This is what it says next. Verse 4, surrounding the throne, there were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. So the question is, right off the bat, who are these 24 elders? In Revelation, numbers can take on extra meaning and extra significance as well. And that number 24 seems to be a reference to actually the 12 tribes of Israel times two. And I don't want to get into it, but in some, it's talking about the overflow of God's people. All of God's people are represented by these 24 elders sitting on these thrones surrounding God's throne. And just to start off, these people who represent the people of God, they aren't groveling like worms before God. They are being seated on places of honor. They're given thrones themselves. That's an incredible grace of God. But I want to focus on two other things in this passage. I want to focus on what they're wearing. Look at what they're wearing. The 24 elders are wearing full white. They are dressed in white. And just like numbers take on extra significance, so can colors. The color white throughout the Bible and in Revelation represents purity, holiness, complete holiness, completely separated from sin, absolute cleanness, no sin at all. And these elders are dressed in white. They're completely free 
of sin. And you've got to be wondering, how did they manage that? Because if these people are anything like you and me, and they are, if they're anything like you and me, we would not be dressed in white right now. We've sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. If we were in the presence of God, we would be crushed by his holiness, crushed by his purity, crushed by his supreme goodness. Because we are sinful. And we cannot bear the presence of God in our sinful state. So God had made a way in the, in the Bible for us to be pure before God, but it involved a lot of things. Here's what you'd have to do for you to be clean. Here's what you've got to do, okay? You've got to obey the law. That's first off. So go through the Old Testament, read all the laws, and obey all those. That's one. Then you've got to do all the rituals that the law entails. So make sure you don't do those rituals correctly. And then you've got to supply all of the right sacrifices at the right time. So make sure you do that. But not only do you have to do those things, you have to do them through a mediator at the temple. So if you want to be clean, here's what you got to do. Easy. Fulfill all the law. Do all the rituals. Bring all the sacrifices and make sure you do it properly at the temple through a priest. How many of us can claim that they have done all of those things? None of us. None of us. Yet these people, these elders, are dressed completely in white, completely righteous before God. How do they manage that? And this is so important. This is so key. This is like the number one thing you need to know about Christianity, about Christ. That you are not saved. In fact, you cannot be saved without the grace of God shown to us in Jesus Christ. You need to know this. Take a, take a look at this passage in 2 Corinthians. It says this. God made him, that's Jesus, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know what that means? That means that when Jesus went to the cross, he took all of our sins, all of your sins, all of your failure to do rituals, sacrifices, and obey, all of your failures, all of your sins, all of the shame of your past, and he put it on himself. And in exchange, get this, in exchange, he gives us his righteousness. He gets our sin, and it's destroyed at the cross. And I get Jesus' righteousness. And you know what the best thing about that is? When God looks at me, he no longer sees sinful, unclean Tyler. When he looks at me, he sees his own son. He sees his own son's righteousness. I am dressed completely in white before God because of what Christ has done for me. This is the grace of God. And the moment you think you can earn your salvation, the moment you think that you are now good enough to be saved is the moment you are not saved because only the grace of God can save us. That's number one. If you do not believe that, you are not a Christ follower. If you do not believe that, you are not saved. You need to believe in the God of grace and his son, Jesus Christ, who bore your sins on the cross. That's the first step of following Christ. And that's God's grace. But there's even more grace in this passage. Take a look. There's more. He's dressed up in more things. He's dressed completely in white because he's completely saved, completely forgiven by Christ. But also, get this, he's got a crown on his head. And James is going to tell us what that crown means. It's the next slide here. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. 
because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So not only based on God's grace are we forgiven in God's presence, which would be glorious enough, but those who follow after him, who persevere, who, I know it's tough, I know we struggle, but who persevere through these trials to live out what God wants for us are given this crown of life, these rewards that Christ wants to give his children. It's a complete gift and grace of God. He saves us and rewards us for what he does in our lives. This is nothing but God's grace. So we will worship him forever because the gift of his grace is worthy of worship forever. That is why we will worship him and be fulfilled for all time because his great grace towards us. Here's the next reason. We will worship him forever because of the dominion of God. How far does God's power extend? How wide is his dominion? How big is the realm of his authority? And that's what we're going to see next. Take a look at what it says in verse 5. From the throne, so the throne scene continues, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. So first we get some imagery that God is manifesting himself through lightning and these peals of thunder and this incredible display of his glory and power. And he does this as if to say, hey, you know all those natural forces out in the world that you think are out of control? You, you know all those natural forces in the world that you think are basically random, that, no one, uh, that answers to no one? Even the lightning answers to me. The natural world is under my very control. The dominion of God includes all nature, all physics, all chemistry. Our God is the God of science. He designed all this. And the more we discover about what science is, the more we can praise God for how he has designed this world. His dominion is over all nature. But that's not all. His dominion is also over the church as well. That's what's being referred to in the next, in the next passage here. Uh, in, in the same passage, sorry, later on. It says this. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. So what are these? I know you're probably confused. What are these seven spirits about? That's strange. I mean, we know that if you've been a believer for a while, then you know that God is one but consists of three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, there's only one Spirit of God. What, what talk, what's it talking about when it says seven? Well, earlier in the book of Revelation, Jesus was talking to the seven churches, and the Spirit of God was present at the seven churches. And so these fiery burning things represent God's presence among all churches, and those churches include ours as well. God's fiery presence is with us, Richview. His fiery, burning, longing power and desire for us is with us even now. And this is wonderful to know because this world is bringing persecution on us. 
we have political pressures coming up against the church. There are uh, atheistic pressures. Secularism is coming in to the church. Other religions are surrounding us. We are pressured from all sides, but we know God's presence is with us and that we will not be defeated. We will be victorious because God's presence will never leave us. When Jesus speaks to Peter, uh, right before Peter starts building the church, he says to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. And not even, get this, not even the gates of hell will overcome it. Not even the gates of hell. Hell could unleash its fury against the church. And buildings might crumble and denominations might end. But God's people, God's church will never fail. That is an eternal promise to you believers. The church will never fail. We will be victorious because Christ's fiery presence is with us, defending us, ensuring the victory of the church. The church isn't a building. The church is you if you're a believer in Christ. But that's not the extent of his dominion. There's more. Take a look at what happens next. This is, this is incredible. This is what it says. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they uh, were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So we're introduced to these, what would otherwise be described as terrifying living creatures. These seem to be high-rank angels. There's only four of them, and they're in the very presence of God in the throne room. And they're described like this. They've got eyes everywhere on them, and they've got six wings. Now, I'm not sure if the Apostle John literally meant, them, meant that they would look like this, but it at least symbolizes that these creatures see all and can move wherever. These are powerful, powerful beings. And if we were in the presence of one of these beings, we would be shocked with their holiness, and we would lay down flat on the ground just like the people in the scriptures do when they run into an angel. They flat out go to the ground worried that their sinfulness will destroy them. These are incredible, terrifying, glorious creatures. And they each represent some living realm. Take a look at what it says again. They, uh, the, the first living creature was like a lion. And a lion is, in their uh, thinking, king of the wild beasts. And the second was like an ox, which is the king of the domesticated animals. And the third was like a man, which, well, is sovereign over all living creatures. And the fourth was like an eagle, which is the king of the flying animals. Now, I'm not sure about that interpretation, and that's open up to a lot of discussion, but one thing is sure. All of these creatures and all of their power, which seem to represent all living things, spend all of their time worshiping God because of his glory. And what this passage is teaching us is that all dominions, all people, all powers, all nature, all living things, all animals, everyone will eventually come to see the beauty, the grace, the power, the dominion, and the glory of God and will worship at his feet. God's dominion is boundless. His power over all things is complete. And we will worship him for all time 
because only he has authority over all things. His dominion is boundless, and we are in his dominion. By the way, all those who will love Christ, all those who will love God, all those who believe on Christ will worship him like these four living creatures with joy and with gladness and with awe. But it will not be the same for those who do not trust in Christ. It will be a much different experience for them. I want to close with this last point, and this one's going to be a short one. Here's the last reason why we will worship God forever and be completely fulfilled. The truth of God. This will be the, a first principle truth. And we all need to understand this, especially believers. We need to know this truth. This truth is at the base of all reality and all existence. And I'm excited to show it to you. Take a look at what it says next. Verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And this is what they say, and here is the truth that we need to get into our minds. Here it is. They lay their crowns before the throne and say this. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. This is the first truth of all reality is that we are made and designed by God and by his will anything at all exists. Take a look at what happens with the people. They lay their crowns down Remember those crowns, those, those rewards that Christ gives to his people? They will lay them down. Why will they do that? They will do that because they are recognizing that only God deserves glory. Only God deserves status. Only God deserves any claim to authority. And so they willingly put their crowns on the ground because they want to worship God and assume no worship for themselves. They're putting their crowns on the ground to say, God, only you are worthy of glory. And those who know this truth, those who delight in this truth and have joy in this truth, bring honor and glory to God. We need to know that his worship is supreme. His will is decisive. His beauty is unmatched. His dominion is boundless. His grace is complete. And his glory is ultimate. That is why we are here. We are here at base because God has designed us to give him glory and for us to enjoy and delight in him. Here's the way that I sum it up. You are designed to delight in God. You are designed, you are made to enjoy God in his richness, in his beauty. You are made, you are here to give glory and honor and praise to God. And to do this, we need to trust in Christ. We need to be saved from our sins so that we can be in the presence of God and give him the honor and glory and worth that he deserves. He is invaluable, priceless, endlessly beautiful. And we need to praise him, praise him, praise him. 
for his goodness. I want to go through three quick fire uh, implications for this. Here's one. Do not come casually to worship Christ. Do not come casually. Do not consider church skippable. Do not consider a service skippable. Why? Because we are doing this thing where we are enjoying a foretaste of God's glory. That's what we're doing here. We're enacting the throne room of God. We are doing, uh, we're, we're going through a little foretaste of what it will be in heaven. We will worship God together and give him glory and give him praise and find our joy in him. So don't consider it skippable. Come with your heart. Come with your affection. Come with your will. And come on time. We're still doing worship in the first 10 minutes of the service. Come on time. Be here. Be here. So that we can enjoy God's presence here together as a church. That's one implication. Here's the second one. Here's the second one. If you're ultimate delight is in anything besides God. You rob God of glory, do his name, that's one thing, but secondly, you rob yourself of joy. If anything is your ultimate delight besides God, if anything, whatever that is, whether it's money, I don't know, whether it's your status, whether it's your family, even, even if it's good things, if your highest delight is in anything besides God himself, that thing will let you down. You rob God of glory and you rob yourself of joy. Make your highest delight. Pray this. Seek God in this. Say, God, make my highest delight your glory and your worth and your beauty. Pray that. Say, God, I need to find joy in knowing you. Help me. Give me a desire to love you more and more and more. The only thing, the only person who will satisfy us forever is Christ. Everything else will fall short. And here's the last thing. Here's the original objection to this. Um, you might be thinking right now, okay, won't, won't it be boring to be in the presence of God worshiping forever and ever and ever? Won't, won't that be just as boring? I've got two responses to that. One is, no. <laughs> it won't be. It, it won't be. Because you will see an unending depth of the glory of God and the beauty of God forever. It will eternally thrill you. It will only get better and better and better as eternity goes on. So one, no. But two, I'm not here claiming that the only thing that heaven will consist of is this throne room scene. God will give other gifts. There will be other things to do, other work to do. But the point is, the wonder of heaven is not the stuff we will get. The wonder of heaven is not the things that we will be rewarded with. The wonder of heaven will be the greatest reward of all, the presence of God himself. He is the one who makes heaven what it is. He is the one who brings beauty and glory to all creation. And he is the one we will gladly worship forever. Will it be the only thing we do? No. But it will be the greatest thing we could ever I'm going to ask the praise team or the band to come up, and I'm actually going to ask that all of us stand as we say these last words together that's going to be on the screen. If you are not ready to say these words, then don't say them. But if you are ready to say these words, if you want to say to God, you are most valuable. The reason I exist is because of you. The reason I am here is to enjoy your glory and to enjoy your beauty. If you believe that and you want to seek God in that, I invite you to read this, these wonderful words with me. Let's read them. 
You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. We are about to sing a song together. And this song is another invitation to behold the incredible, the immaculate, the wonderful, the unending glory of God. Yes, in a small way, but in a big way, in the eyes of God. Let's sing together.